Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey everyone, welcome back. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am super excited to present this week's In the Company of Friends talk, which is with Madison Silva or Mary Madison Silva. She is an artist having done work for Smashed Potato Kids, as well as a project that's very near and dear to my heart, which is Dark Country, the series. So I will be posting all kinds of things in the show notes. Please take a look at them. I want to put a warning up here in the front that we do talk about suicide. I want to be sensitive to listeners that may be triggered by that. Please be aware that that is some of the subject of this episode, very short portion of it. But if you are an artist or somebody who wants to learn about art is interested in going in that direction, this is the episode to listen to. Madison has so much information, so much to teach the listener. So please grab a cuppa and join Madison and me in this week's In the Company of Friends Talk. Enjoy. You worked on crumbs. And so I ordered one and I have it in front of me. And I just think it's fantastic. Oh, thank you. We're starting kind of at a weird spot. So I'll just let the listeners know that there is a comic book called Crumbs. And on Instagram, it's at Crumbs the Clown. And Madison, um, oh, I should ask you, this is Mary Madison Silvis. Do you like Madison yes. better? Madison, Mary, Mary Madison. I mean, there's a whole story to the whole name thing, but I could probably get to that one later. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Okay, but you like Madison? I do like Madison, yes. I think it suits you. I like I like that name a lot. And it's so funny because every Madison I know is such a charming, fun person. I mean, like they're always laughing and stuff, and, and I really enjoy talking to them, so... <laughs> I'm glad to know that. <laughs> so it fits you so well. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> I have a name that suits my personality. It, it actually, I guess, I guess I could talk about it now. It's it's funny that you mentioned that because my real name, my legal name, is Mary. And I was in high school, and I decided I don't like the name Mary. I'm going to be Marilyn. I don't remember where I got the name from or why, but when a friend of mine mentioned Marilyn Manson and I looked into who Marilyn Manson was, I was like, oh, oh can't do that one. And <laughs> I think I had watched 
Splash. And I was like, I love the name Madison. I'm going to choose the name Madison. And then I went into college and I started telling everybody, my name is Mary, but I go by Madison. And everybody was like, oh, it must be your middle name or something like that. I'm like, no, I just want to be called Madison. And I think people at work started to call me Mary Madison. And I was just like, you know what? That's probably a better professional name. My family still called me Mary, but most of my friends, colleagues call me Madison now. Oh, that's such a great story. And also, what a great film. I haven't watched that in a long time, but uh, (laughs) Hannah and Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Madison Square Garden. That's why she chose that name. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Now I'm gonna, now I'm gonna have to watch it when we're done because I haven't seen it forever. <laughs> Marilyn is really nice too, but I think Madison really suits you. Yeah, my my mom wishes I could speak to her when I I was still in the womb because then she would have named me Madison instead. How do they feel about you choosing that name? My grandmother refuses to acknowledge the name. My mom and my sister think it's a a fun little quirk about me. I think they have no problems with it. But one of my aunts actually does call me by Madison. She, She honors the name, which I think is very sweet of her. Yes. Yeah. I think that we should all be able to call ourselves whatever we like, because, you know, a lot of times the names that we're given, I mean, they're not terrible. Clearly, our parents thought about them forever before calling us that. But, you know, like, I don't really like my my birth name is Sylvia. And it's so funny because everybody, everybody invariably will tell me that they have an aunt Sylvia. And it just feels so <laughs> old fashioned. It's like, like this older woman. And as I've gone through life, you know, I've met plenty of Sylvia's that are my age or even younger. And some people will, you know, say, Oh, that's a beautiful name. But I did get a lot of like, it's an old name. And I don't know what I would have called myself, but it wouldn't have been Sylvia. Although my mom <laughs> at the time, like to read a lot of Chinese novels. And one of the heroines in the story was named Mei Ling. And so she had told me, you know, if it wasn't Sylvia, I would have named you Mei Ling. I don't think it would have fit, you know, because I'm Hispanic. It would have just been kind of interesting. You know, I would have had to tell the story every single time I met a new person. (laughs) Tell me how your mom came up with Mei Ling. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a lovely I think that at a certain point, if we want to be called something different, then all the power. I'm glad you did that. I am really glad too. And if I ever get married one day, I might change it officially. But I do enjoy having that icebreaker when I meet people, especially because I'm just very socially anxious and I don't do small talk really well. So it's a nice little icebreaker. Yeah. You know, I went through the comic book. It's fairly short and it's a great little story. And I'm always so impressed by good artists. And this is phenomenal. So I have a bunch of questions about what you did here. But I did want to mention that at the end, there's a gallery of alternative covers. And I'm guessing that these were submitted along with yours. And you're the one that got chosen to do this. And I just think that's really amazing, because your artwork really does stand out. Thank you. I really appreciate that. 
they wanted to use a lot of different artists. Uh, Smash Potato Kids, who is the production group, they were the ones behind the story. They just randomly contacted me. I don't know how they found me. I don't know why they found me because I had never done comic books before. I, I hadn't even drawn anything horror related and I just get a message on Instagram one day. I don't know how many other people they had contacted, but they kept in touch with them and they asked them all to submit alternative covers, which they used in their Kickstarter to promote the higher tier. So if you paid like $100 or more, I think you got prints of all of the covers or you got a comic book printed in that cover. I can't remember exactly what it was that they did. They did it last year, but their process and their goal was to incorporate as many artists as they could into this project. They have so many plans to go with this one. I've heard that they've got good news coming up for an expansion on the project, but I'm I'm not exactly sure I can talk about just yet, but it's a huge project. Yeah, and that inclusivity of so many artists working on this it's unique and it's really neat. I'm sure that whatever comes out at the end is going to be pretty amazing. I actually signed a contract with them, a confidentiality contract. So I'm not exactly sure how much I can talk about their goals, but I do know that this is not the intended ending of this universe. That made sense. And then some of the things that you were talking about really piqued my interest, like having never worked on a comic before, like how is this different? And then also having never worked with horror illustrations, how was that process? It was a learning curve. Um, Black and white has always been a very comfortable medium for me. So when they came to me and they said that we wanted to do a black and white with spots of red for the blood, that was completely fine. But they have a monster and they wanted this monster to be terrifying. And I go, I don't think you understand. I am somebody who draws cowboys, you know, for (laughs) girly fan pleasure. (laughs) And... It was a learning process to communicate with the creators of this story and going back and forth with them and talking about what changes that they wanted, how did they want the monster to look. Um, I used to, I don't know if you remember the whole controversy that's, I guess it's still going on about AI artists and taking over the art world. Yes, I actually wanted to ask you about that too. That's one of the things in the back of my mind. So I'm interested in what you have to say about that. There are some concerns, particularly about taking jobs away from people who have specialties in portrait paintings where you have profile pictures and they make their money with profile pictures because now you have people that are just going to AI art making their own profile picture. I, I don't really know how that whole part of the industry works. I don't know that part of the art world. I've never been in that area, but I can understand the frustration, the fear, and the anxiety over having that possibility. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other things too that I'm not really aware of. However, the main creator of the story was using AI art to give me an idea of what he was looking for. He would actually go in, he would type a prompt, and he would actually create his own works and go, this is what I'm looking for. Can you work with that? And I would take it and I would start forming a monster around it. And some of those monsters actually appear in the comic book on the very last, I think, full page or the page before. 
He actually made a short called AI Artist. It's hilarious. They're a, a horror group, so it's kind of a horror film, but it's a really funny film, too. Really? Is it available on YouTube? I'm going to have to see if I can find a link to it. But yes, I do believe it's available. I do believe Crumbs is available as well. The short film for Crumbs. Smash Potato Kids production. They are constantly making things right now. They were doing improv. And the writer is traveling the world right now with his wife. And he has a book coming out. So this is a very creative group and they're they're doing all sorts of things that I really think that people should look into and not just for the crumbs world, but just all these other things that they've been doing. It's been an honor and it's been very rewarding to work with the group that has been so creative after spending my life so distant from the creative community. Yeah, it's amazing how when you get in with a group, your horizons really expand because you've got to open up your mind to other possibilities that without somebody else introducing them to you may have never occurred to you. And that's always a lot of fun. You know, some of my writing projects, well, you know, you're working with us doing some illustrations for us for Dark Country. And we have a writer's room and the writer's room is amazing because we can bounce ideas off of each other. It's so invaluable working with other creatives. Just a note, in deference to the writer's strike, there has been no writer's room for the duration of the strike. It is rewarding, satisfying, and it's one of the most give and take relationships I've ever experienced in my life. You get a bunch of creatives in the room and there's no stopping them. <laughs> they, they are going to just continue going on. I, I'm working on my own story. I'm still in the brainstorming outlining process, but I am working with someone who is a ghostwriter slash editor slash writer herself, Tethys Maiden. She and I have been friends for years and there have been nights where you know, joking aside, we will be putting ideas back and forth between each other, talking about our own projects. And it is just this fuel and it, there's this life to it that I really, you know, I, I want to share that with everybody. There's so much passion. There's so much just almost carefree nature about it. The world, the, the horrors, the chaos of the world just doesn't exist anymore when you are just focused on being creative. Yeah, yeah, there's a thrilling quality to it. Yeah, you could get lost in that. And there's other projects that I've done with other creatives. And it's always like, oh, we got to go home now. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <Started>. <laughs> I don't want to go home. I don't want to eat. Just give me some more coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there is that thrilling quality. And I love that. It's just so cool. And it does fuel you. You know, it just fuels you to keep going. And the more you do it, the more your mind expands and your opportunity and your vision, you know, so I'm excited to see what your project is once you get it ready to go. I'm pretty excited too. I've actually been putting up some teasers on my Instagram. It's a very close to my heart kind of a story that I've, I've been working on, I think, since I was in, in college. So roughly 14, 15 years now. And it's a project that I picked up put down, picked up again, revamped, put down, picked up again. And then I just, I, I laid it down for the longest time. I, I just kind of had a period 
you know, 10 years where I just stopped being creative. And I, I guess you could say I had the creative soul of me just kind of sucked out. Mm-hmm. You know, I just recently picked it back up. And you really do know when things are meant to be. And this is one of those stories for me. Like, this is something I was meant to write. And, you know, it, it just certain things had to fall into place. And I had to meet a couple of people. I had to experience a couple of experiences. Now, today, I get to be where I'm at. I'm, I'm going to be participating in Inktober this year, which is this drawing thing that was started by Jake Parker. I don't remember how long ago, but there's a whole bunch of different places of social media where they post it. For every day in October, artists will post one single drawing that has been prompted by a single word. And I created my own prompt list. Mm -hmm. And the goal this year (laughs) is to take my own prompt and apply the characters from my story, both to create a little bit more interest for it, but also to give me some practice with drawing the facial features, the different backgrounds, emotions. Um, I'm kind of using it as a practice tool as well. Wow. I did see you did the Inktober. This will be your third year, right? Or at least on Instagram. Yeah, it will be my third year. Um, I did take a couple of years off I was doing the crumbs project as well as something else I was doing one year so there were a couple of years where I didn't do it but hopefully I will be able to stick to it this time oh you will I mean I feel like you did stick to it both of those times and just the fact that this is so near and dear to your heart and it's just going to help you get closer to your goal I think will have you coming back to the drawing board every single day it's one drawing a day. That's just amazing. I, you know, I draw a little bit, like maybe every two or three years, I'll sit down and try to do something. So <laughs> there is, <laughs> there's definitely not a whole lot of effort that goes into that. I couldn't imagine being asked to draw something every single day. And maybe I should play around with that. I mean, it wouldn't be in October. <laughs> Uh, it would be like, draw a flower today, <laughs> draw a leaf tomorrow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you go into art schools and you go and apply for different classes, I, I took art classes in a community college. They have you draw every single day, but it's nothing In fact, they didn't have me draw what it is I draw today. They would always have me drawing different things like sometimes it was just shapes or lines or other days it was drawing just a random abstract design. And the goal was just to get drawing. I don't know how many people will know who this is, but Michael Matsumoto who does a lot of work for Star Wars. He was my illustration teacher back in Santiago Community College. Um, And I think this was back way before he became a big Star Wars artist. I don't know if he's still working projects for them, but he was when he was teaching me. He would talk a lot about, you know, he would just sit in front of the TV with his girlfriend and they'd be watching Captain America. And all he would want to do is just draw Captain America. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course you're going to draw because you can draw amazingly well. And he would show us his sketchbooks and they are very simple lines. They are not drawings that concept artists show. They're not these finished works of art. They're just very simple line drawings. And he's just going through the motion. There was another professor, he told us every 10,000 drawing, you get better. So every 10,000 drawings, 
you're going to level up. And it's it's amazing. I, I took a little bit of a trip back when I was preparing to speak for the podcast, going through some old sketchbooks. And I very rarely look back at my sketchbooks. And there is a huge difference. I... I did not realize the difference because I'm doing it every day. I'm constantly taking the pencil, even when I don't really feel like it. And it's agonizing because I'd rather go sleep or I'd rather go do something or I keep, you know, getting up to do something else because I'm having so much anxiety. If you draw it every single day, you're going to see this transformation. But you also have to be able to look back at your old work and compare it to today and be like, oh, wow, like it could be something as simple as your circles look better or your lines are a little bit straighter, or your lines are a little more confident. Or with me, in my case, I started to notice that I was getting much more comfortable with contrast with my pencil work. I never liked to go dark. Everything was very light and the lines were the same weight. And I couldn't understand why, why, why wasn't it looking like, you know, Matsumoto's or why wouldn't it look like Jorge Hauptmines? What what was I doing wrong? It was the line weight. It was going darker. And the darker I went with the contrast and the shadows in my digital sketches, the more comfortable I started to get. So I, I always tell people, you can become an artist. You can draw. You do not have to have talent. It's, are you willing to put the time in? Are you willing to put the frustration in? Are you willing to learn the shapes? That's all it takes. That is all it takes to become an artist. That's that. Keep showing up and keep consistent in what you're doing. And I think it's so interesting that your professor had the, you know, every 10,000th drawing you improve because Malcolm Gladwell has this 10,000 hour formula where once you've done something for 10,000 hours straight, you will become an expert in whatever that is. In his book called Outliers, he has a whole list of different professions where at 10,000 hours, you become an expert in that field or that craft. And so that completely makes sense because by your 10,000th drawing, you've probably put minimally an hour into each one of those. How did your interest in art begin? Oh boy. Um, Well, I mean, you would probably have to talk to my mom about that one or my grandmother. I, (laughs) I have been drawing since I can remember, but one of my, my mom's favorite stories to tell is I was 18 months old. We were living in an apartment and she would gather the envelopes on the coffee table and she'd notice that there were these little drawings of cats like a little circle and stick your legs and the the typical child's cat drawings mm-hmm. and then she thought my dad was drawing them and so she would kind of oh. just throw them away and <laughs> didn't think much of it until she started to find drawings on the wall <laughs> and they were about my height and then she caught me one day drawing on the wall and she wasn't even mad. It was just more of like my 18 month old baby is drawing really good pictures of cats. What the fuck? Oh <laughs> my God. <laughs> That's really cool that you just got this natural inclination to understand. I know that there's like a lot of 
math, you know, that that's subconscious in that, but in understanding the relationship of space to something else or not making a head so big that it doesn't go with the body, which is something that kids tend to do or all of those things. I mean, like, that's just something that's innately in your mind that you're able to see. And at 18 months old, that's crazy. I think a lot of it has to do with I was born deaf in my left ear, and I had severe hearing loss in my left ear. So I relied very heavily, I still rely very heavily on my visual senses now. And I didn't learn how to speak clearly until I was around seven. That was through all of the school pathology. And I got dragged out of classes quite often for speech impairment lessons. And so I think art was so natural for me because that was really the only way I could communicate. It was the only way I could express. I was making noises. And I remember being told when I was in kindergarten, all the kids had to translate for me to the teacher. Oh, my gosh. Kids are so sweet and naturally smart. I mean, I think that as we grow into adults, we stop really listening we stop paying attention to things. We get rigid in our in our way of thinking, like if things aren't delivered to us in the way that we expect them to be delivered, then we're not able to grasp what's being communicated to us. And we basically kind of handicap ourselves, I think. And kids are just open to everything. And so they're listening to you and they're like, well, of course, this is what she's saying. Like we can understand her clearly. And that's, that is, that's really awesome. I think it's something that we need to work on more as adults, uh, just kind of open up a little bit more. Yeah, I think we go through so much in our lives and, you know, kids still, they're very fresh, innocent, very pure. And as we age, we we just start going through so much and blocking out the world. A lot of it, I think, is a self defense mechanism. But Part of the journey that I've been undergoing, especially the past three years, has been mostly me trying to learn to open up my mind and let the fear kind of just sit there. I'm very dominated by fear, which I think is a lot of the problem with adults nowadays, or or as we get older, we just get so afraid of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm, I'm a very pessimistic person. So I'm kind of sitting here like nothing good is ever going to happen to me, you know, despite the fact that I get picked, you know, for a comic book, a horror comic book without having any comic book or horror experience. You know, I sit here thinking everything bad and negative is going to happen to me. But that's just the fear of talking. And I've been undergoing this journey for the past eight years. I, I, I don't know if I'm ruining anonymity by saying this, but I I joined a 12-step program called Al-Anon, which is for the friends and family of alcoholics and addicts. And it's a very similarly set up program to AA, but it's more directed for thinkaholics. And we get so stuck in our thinking. One of the jokes I've heard is normal people will have 50,000 thoughts a day, whereas Al-Anons will have three thoughts 50,000 times a day. (laughs) There's been no truer statement, particularly for me, I will have obsessive thinking. And it's usually obsessive in the terms of fear. So I I went through this whole journey, still going through this whole journey, where 
I guess you could say I'm using my art to not necessarily battle the fear, but to open up a very narrow world and a world that I made narrow myself. I was very isolating. I, I did not talk to people. I was very angry and lashing out. I was very defensive. And I, I still have defensive days today, but the difference is I'm learning to defend myself while still being open to everything that the universe has to teach me. It's not easy. I'm not perfect at it. But it's definitely learning how to let your inner child kind of take over and be inquisitive and curious. And I find that through being creative. I never would have taken on this project if I had let fear rule my life. I, I don't think I would have gotten past some of my darkest days if I did not have what I have today, which is the amazing support group behind me, the ability to draw out my feelings, the ability to express myself in a very creative way. It, I, re- I really think that the key and the answer to everything is looking at the world in a very inquisitive, childlike way. Is it easy? I don't think so, but... <laughs> I really think that my answer lies there. Yeah, that curiosity. And it is easy to lose that, especially when you have something so debilitating as what you just explained. And I love that the art is helping you with some of that self-advocacy, you know, speaking out or communicating in the ways that that you have been able to through your art. And I just I just want to let you know, I think it's really brave of you to take that step because I have had moments like that in my life that spanned over a year. And it was really, really so hard for me personally being in a dark place where nothing, no thought, no idea, no action is going to make anything better. And you're just there. And it doesn't seem like you're ever going to be able to get out of there. And knowing how much that has a hold on you, to be able to actually make that first move to get out of there and then to continue to do it every single day. I know that that takes a lot of courage a lot of work and a lot of energy and the fact that you're creating such amazing things with each one of those steps is just mind blowing. And um, I hope that you continue on this journey and you're able to get past that. It's, I'm not going to say that it goes away. I mean, I, I, I reached a very, very low point where I pretty much had just said, fuck all this. And I sometimes occasionally will go back and entertain the idea, but Mm -hmm. I think that I only got to that lowest point because for 10 years I was not drawing. I won't say I gave up. I got distracted with other things Mm -hmm. and then I was facing my time being alone and I wasn't drawing. I was not, I wasn't doing anything creative. I was just kind of sitting in this dark abyss. (laughs) I've had a couple of people ask me before, why did a video game save your life? Um, And it was Red Dead Redemption 2. And, you know, I 
my only answer is it distracted me long enough to get me creative again. When I got creative again, when I started drawing again, when I started feeling that passion again, I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm never quite rid of that darkness. It, it just kind of follows me. But as long as I'm creating, as long as I'm, I'm achieving these goals of mine, I'm feeling fulfilled. I'm feeling like I have a purpose. I've, I listened to one of your podcasts. I don't remember which one it was, but you were talking about having a sense of purpose. And I was like, that's, that's exactly what it is. I can escape those evil, dark, looming thoughts of the end if I just have my purpose. And I, I strongly believe that my purpose is to draw and create stories. I mean, it's definitely my passion. And when... <laughs> When I got contacted by Connor, when I got yeah. contacted to do Dark Country, I was so excited because Westerns are my favorite genre. And I'm coming from Red Dead Redemption 2, which just made me have to draw more cowboys and horses. And when I got contacted to work on a Western, I was like, oh, yes, this is this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. And I had so much fun. I mean, that was a whole nother learning curve I had to do because, as I've said before, I'm a black and white artist. He's asking for a full color painting rendering, and I'm going, right. oh, boy. <laughs> in very rich tones. And, you know, you did such a beautiful job, and that's uh, Connor Severson, who is the mastermind behind Dark Country, which we hope to release pretty soon. But I remember him sending me the first renderings that you made, and I was just like, blown away. I'm like, oh my God, these are amazing. They bring out the actual character. I mean, like you fleshed them out so much. They went, you know, and that's one of the exciting things about the creative process is that you get to see something go from just a thought to paper to then something like the renderings that you've done for us and onto film and become an actual project in a world. But that dark country world is so exciting and it's really interesting. And I mean, you know, it's very loosely based on real events and people in the world. We've done so much research for that time period. I think one of the exciting things is that it spans beyond the normal Wild West story that you hear because we're doing the whole entire United States. So it's including things that you forget about when you're watching like Tombstone, which is that there was slavery happening at the same time and women were striking out to try to do things for themselves. And, and the United States was burgeoning with so many things that were going on. The railroads were coming in, prohibition, you know, I mean, it was it was just a very busy time in America. And so we're trying to bring a little bit of all of that into the story. So you're going to have some really cool, cool characters to work on as our project continues. And I, I really do hope it continues. I really honestly cannot wait because Westerns, uh, they are a soft spot of mine. I've never really been a fan of John Wayne Westerns, but, you know, Clint uh -huh. Eastwood and the oh, old yeah. spaghetti Westerns, and I grew up on them with my dad. You know, nowadays you have Godless. The whole Western genre is becoming popular again, which I'm so excited for. 
it, it is one of those projects where I'm so excited to work on. When you have enough excitement like that and you have enough just gung-ho, I guess you can say, you're going to fight through the fear of doing a full color rendering when you're not used to doing coloring. <laughs> His latest five-page teaser of Max's Indifference was definitely a turning point for me because, again, he wanted color. I'm not familiar with color, with crumbs. I, I was able to get away with black and white. And now I have to learn, you know, what color is the skin in shading in the daytime when the sun is at noon? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. And it's not just even that. You have to set a color tone. You have to set a mood tone. You have to set what does it look like at night? What does it look like during the day? And apparently... Apparently, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but skin tones and shadows is not blue. It's whatever color the ambience light is. And I'm like, how do you figure that out? <laughs> wow. It's, it's a whole mathematical, scientific process. There's color theory behind everything. And that is my weakest point when it comes to making all of these illustrations. I am not a color expert. I... You want me to sketch a horse, you know, that's riding a bull, that's charging around a rodeo arena? That I can do. <laughs> you want me to paint you a black horse that you have, like, no. <laughs> there's blue involved with that. There's purple involved. There's red, browns. I, I know. I'll stick with black and white. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I just think that's where your practice, your continued work with what your passion is allows you to continue to just get better and better and having the courage to jump into projects that you're not super familiar with. You learn from those, you know, like it's funny, I was just working on an interview for myself for the podcast. And one of the questions was, you know, what have been your struggles? And I said, oh, just getting started. You know, I just kind of jumped into the deep end of podcasting and my first episode is no longer available. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <was> so bad. <laughs> yeah, first episode, first drawing, that's gone. <laughs> it's gone, you know, but I, I had to do that. And I think that we all need to just take that first step. And then what I've done since then is, you know, I will occasionally study you know, one of my episodes and it's like, what could I have done better? How could I have asked better questions? Or how could I have made this sound more conversational? Because occasionally people are so uncomfortable, it's just very stilted and there's not a whole lot I can do at the end. And that's not how we normally talk. You know, we're usually just flowing along, having this great conversation that all of a sudden it's like you hit the record button and everybody's like, okay, I can't say anything. I can't, you know, this ends up not shining the best light on people. And so I do things like that where I'll go back and I'll think, okay, well, how can I make a guest like that feel a little bit more comfortable and um, those sorts of things. But it's just showing up and having the courage to just go, all right, you know, that one didn't work out as well as I would have liked, but this next one is going to be fantastic. And I think a year from now, or even just a few months from now, you're going to be like, color, no problem. I'm pro at that. I, I'm already much, much more comfortable after oh, just good. doing all of the, the five pages because I did them three times. I did the colors three times. And then I had to redo the inks because 
I misunderstood the script and I thought it was at night. So the shading was completely mm. off. So I had to redo those pages a couple of times to make sure that, you know, not only were they good enough for him, but I felt like they were good enough to show to the client and making mistakes is okay. I think that has been the ultimate lesson I have been learning in the past two, three years is that making mistakes is okay. I'm an extreme perfectionist. I have a hard time getting started with sketching because I know that those first two, three sketches are going to suck and that I am going Mm -hmm. to get mad and I'm just going to rip those pages out because they're not perfect. But When I did the first night scenes and I kept doing a lot of color trials and trying to figure out, you know, how, how do I, how do I not overdo the colors and all this? I learned so many tricks and I learned a lot of different combinations that worked. And I ended up finding out that my own project that I was working on, I was doing it at the same time, trying to figure out the tips and tricks so that I can apply them to dark country. I found out that I have a character who wears a really old, dusty Cubs hat. And a Cubs hat is very bright blue color. How do you make that look dusty? Well, you take the complementary color and you add that, which is orange. And surprisingly enough, when you kind of make this faded orange wash over it, you know, um, and I'm talking in a digital sense, I think it might be different when you're talking traditional, but it started to make it look worn out, sweated through. And I was like, oh, okay, now I'm getting it. You know, and it takes a couple of mistakes. It takes a couple bits of practice. It took a lot of failed, quote unquote, masterpieces for me, which I've been posting on my Instagram, you know, because I I do want to challenge that mindset that everything people make is perfect, because that's what I thought all the time. And it's not. That's not the case. You have to make mistakes to learn. It's probably been the number one lesson I have been learning all throughout these projects. Those mistakes make you better because they're not a failure. They're they're actually a lesson. And any time that you have to do something three times to or four times or a hundred times to get it right, you're learning with every revision and just becoming so much more familiar with the process and understanding all of those scientific and mathematical formulas that you initially didn't know with that first pass. And so I think that's amazing. And I love that you're so much more comfortable with color because I just, I can't stop singing your praises with what you've done for us. And it looks, (laughs) they all look amazing. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Douglas, the Douglas character that you did needs to be on an eight by 10 on a wall. <laughs> I think I have the file. I think I sent him the file. It's all set up. If you guys want to do that, it's all set up to be enlarged to even, I think, I think it actually go as big as a four by three, four feet by three oh, feet. Wow. Oh, I, I work on big files. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, we're going to have to look into that. Um, Do you have favorite artists that inspire your work? I don't particularly have any favorite artists, or at least none that I can remember, except for Jorge Martinez, who is a Brazilian comic book illustrator who is working on Batman, I believe, right now. 
I'm not a big comic book nerd, I guess you could say. I like Deadpool, but I, I'm more interested in the graphic novel section, but I don't really know a lot of artists. I mm-hmm. tend to find my inspiration more from different styles that I like. I'll find different ways that people draw hands and I go, oh, I want to draw my hands like that. How do they do that? I did a lot of it while I was working on Max's Indifference where I would go and just find color combinations and the way how people were coloring different pages and I would try to mimic those styles. I don't really have favorite artists. I kind of take my inspiration from whatever project I'm working on and I try to match it to other examples out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you just mentioned hands, and I kind of think that anybody who's ever tried to draw hands and feet, they're just like, I give up. I will never do art again. (laughs) (laughs) How hard was it to master that? And is that the hardest the hardest thing to master? It's I'm still trying to master it. I, I. I always think of, uh, there's a comic book illustrator that I know people are going to know he is behind the creation of Deadpool. His name is Rob Liefeld. He's known in the meme world because he does not like drawing hands or feet and they're always (laughs) hidden somehow. And I laugh because when you look at old drawings of mine, (laughs) the body, the head, everything else is complete, but it's always like, like, I just stopped drawing at the hands and feet. I just plain out stopped drawing. <laughs> like, they're, they're going to be amputees. That's what they're going to be. And Oh, my God. It's like, <laughs> just going to the wrists and the ankles. That's it. Right. So Jad is going to put those little mittens over them, those little, like, children's mittens. And, uh, oh, they're going to be uh, they're going to be having their hands in their pockets. And, oh, they're going to have uh, Uggs on. <laughs> just keep it as simple as possible. <laughs> Oh my gosh. How long did it take you to figure out, I mean, to be comfortable with what your hands and and feet looked like to actually start putting projects out there that included them? I had to start looking at them in a much, much simpler way. And that was kind of what I was missing for a large portion of my drawing career was I was always trying to look at the details. When you're drawing hands and feet, they're boxes. Um, I mean, if you're to look at your hands right now, the palm is just one big square and all of your fingers are these long rectangles. They're three rectangles in one long rectangle, basically. And when you can see that and you can start looking at the proportions of them in terms of where are the fingers meeting each other, where, how long are they, it gets a little bit easier to draw them. And it's the same thing with the feet. You know, I just started with boxes. And I would take, uh, there's a website called Line of Action, and it's a gesture website. It's a a live figure drawing, um, parental guidance, beware there is nudity on this website. And I'm sorry, but if you really want to get good at art, learn to draw naked people. In fact, if you need an excuse to draw naked people, be an artist. And it's, it's just the best way to learn how the body is transforming. It's the best way to see the shapes. It's the best way to see where the limbs are going. 
I mean, there's a lot of different things that I think when you're just like walking around Disneyland, you're not really going to notice that the hip and the shoulders are never perpendicular. They, they're always kind of alternating. The spine is never really straight. It's always kind of swaying back and forth. Um, you know, and then you have some people who walk with their chest forward. You have some people that walk with their backs leaning backwards. You have some people that walk with their heads. You have some people that walk with their hips. Uh, you have some people with bowed legged you have some people that walk with their knees in and they kind of have this pigeon stance. And I mean, when you can start seeing those little differences and you can start looking at the basics, the shapes, the lines, then you can actually go into drawing more of the details. It wasn't until I learned that, that I was able to get braver about drawing things that were much harder for me like horses. I've always been drawing horses. They're my favorite animal. I am the weird horse girl. You know, I was in high school running around the lawn like I was riding a horse. I was, I was that girl. And I... I have a lot of friends that are that girl. <laughs> hey, we are an interesting group. You will never be yes. bored. I will give you that. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, but I, I loved horses. I just, I could never figure out how to draw them. So I'm, I only drew them in one angle growing up. And I was always afraid to draw them face first or draw the angled profile or their hooves. It wasn't until I was able to apply this gestural foundation that I was able to start getting better and better at drawing pretty much everything. Wow. You know, that's just, again, just showing up and noticing and paying attention and doing the work and going through the process, you know, to, to get to those 10,000 hours, there's a lot of observation and experimentation that goes along with it. And then all of a sudden, one day, like you said, you're walking through Disneyland and you're like, whoa, look at the way this person walks. Look at the way that one walks. Look at, you know, the way they're standing, the way they're sitting. There's just so many different variations of how the human body propels itself in space. It's all that body language that people talk about. You can convey so many emotions just through the way how somebody is sitting. You don't even have to have a face on them. You can just show with their shoulders how somebody is feeling. And it, mm. it takes a lot of observation, which I'm just now starting to learn how to do. And it's all this journey. It's a journey of getting outside of yourself and seeing the world around you as it really is. Yeah, it almost uh, makes the artist something of a psychologist or an emotions expert, just knowing those different body postures and gestures and, you know, shoulders up around the ears or relaxed, and then all the permutations in between. I do believe that psychology needs to be a mandatory class for professional artists. Um, especially illustrators who work with expression and, and expressive illustration, because not only do you have color psychology, but the way how people respond to different images or the way how somebody, you know, if, if, if there, there's a trick, and I, I, you might be aware of it too, working in film, that there's a lot of camera tricks, a lot of camera angles that you can use to not just convey a feeling, but to make somebody feel. And that is my goal as an artist, as a storyteller. You know, I, I want to make you feel 
what this character is feeling. I'm trying to show you another perspective, another person's life. So I do strongly believe that psychology needs to be a mandatory. I mean, I've got psychology books all over me. I've, you know, right now I'm writing a story about somebody who's uh, suffering from a mental illness. So I've got books of it all over the place. It, even if you're not an artist, understanding that psychology is, is extremely useful. You know, I, I work in retail as a day job. When I can get past being upset with rude customers, you can really see people and how they are. You can you can see a couple walking around and the guy's pissed off and the woman's just kind of, you know, following along. You can see the, the man who doesn't really want to be there and his wife is buying everything. I mean, you can really see the differences in the world. You know, it's just, again, it's my process. My life journey is, is slowly teaching me how to get out of myself and see the world as it is. And I, I think I really achieved that by being an artist. Being an artist has not just been a hobby for me. It's been almost a savior. Yeah. And do you use those instances as inspiration for your art and also just as inspiration for your writing, for your characters that you're writing? Absolutely. Um, I absolutely use different moments. I have a coworker. He is my personality inspiration for the main character of the story I'm writing right now. And I will literally be sitting there on my phone. I have a uh, note section on my phone that is literally titled Crook's Path notes and i will be writing down conversations that he and i or that he and another one of my, my co-workers have been having and i'll literally be taking inspiration and conversations from him and he knows i'm doing it he's always giving me suggestions and he is just he's a riot and i have had a lot of people who know what i'm doing who know that i'm writing this and i thought people were going to tell me this is stupid why are you doing this mm -hmm. and i never would talk about it and I'd give up. It, it blows me away how many people are trying to give me ideas and inspiration and they're fully 100% supporting me. I'm, I'm blown away by it. That's awesome to have people that want to see you succeed like that. It's a very different feeling. Um, I was very isolated. As I've stated before, I I never really told people about my dreams. I don't think I really knew what my dreams were. Mm -hmm. So I always grew up with the, I don't remember who told me or how I got this idea, but I always grew up with the starving artist notion. And, you know, I could have it as a hobby, but I had to have a serious job. And clearly I didn't listen to that very well because I went to Brooks Institute, which is a film school. Right. And I thought I was going to become a famous director and actress. So clearly I didn't listen to it that well, but <laughs> I did get a job in a warehouse and I just... I kept thinking, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to. I'm never going to make a story. I've always wanted to write a story. I I don't think I was mature enough, and I don't think I had the right tools under my belt just yet. And I had to go through a lot of pain as well to kind of come to the conclusion of what it was I wanted to do. But the number one thing that always stopped me was nobody's going to approve of this. Nobody is going to like what it is I'm doing. And life has a funny way of kind of showing you the opposite. 
Yeah. My family is supporting me. Um, they may not necessarily like the details of what I'm doing, but they're <laughs> supporting me, chasing my dreams. Madison, let's talk about this Crumbs character. <laughs> <laughs> that is really great that you're getting that level of support. And also, I can very much relate with that paralyzing fear of putting something out there that is a project that you would like to work on that you think is viable that comes out of that creative space within you and feeling like people are going to tell you this is the worst thing ever Um, i have a project that i'm currently working on like that uh, where i mentioned it to somebody and they were like whoa that's like so dark and then i was like oh well maybe i better not do this that's just been sitting around for quite a bit and I ended up talking to this amazing musician and just amazing human period named Luis Guerra. He does a lot of film scores and also does music for podcasts like Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. And one of the things that he told me was do not fall in love with your ideas. Like, Don't spend so much time agonizing over how to put them out perfectly. Just put them out there because once that idea is out there, you're on to your next idea. And he just said, you know, be intentional with what you're working on and put it out there. There's going to always be somebody who will love your idea as much as you do and probably just be stunned that somebody either had the courage to put it out there or the capacity of imagination to create it. And, you know, there's always going to be people. I mean, this is like the one thing that I've learned. There's always going to be people who are not going to like what you do. And that's okay. Maybe they don't like the type of art that you're doing, or they don't like the type of content that I'm putting out, but they can find something that they like elsewhere. Like we're not here to appeal to every single person because I think that's impossible to do no matter how good you are with anything. But I think that you have to be true to yourself. And I think that what Louise said about not falling in love with your ideas and just kind of going, all right, this is an idea. How do I execute it? How do I get it out there? Is It, it kind of um, puts a little bit of a division between your emotions and what you actually have to do. That's actually very insightful and very, very true. I'm a people pleaser. So I, I, you know, of course, I'm going to try my damnness to make everybody like me, you know, for selfish reasons. Right. And back in 2019, I underwent a couple of very bad choices. And I have to suffer a couple of consequences as a result of those choices. And one of the consequences is a lot of people do not like me. Hmm. Um, It affected me greatly. It was extremely difficult for me. It still is difficult for me to accept that not everybody likes me. I I don't remember where I got this from or if I just came up with it myself. But at the end of the day, if one person likes me, then I'm okay. And that one person needs to be me. 
Yeah. It's not going to matter if anybody else likes me. You know, I try to write this story with the mindset of as long as I love it, it could be a complete total failure. In fact, I'm expecting it to be a failure because I'm a pessimist. But as long as I put out something that I know I put my best effort in, that I know that I tried really hard, that I love the product, then I did a good job. And as long as I keep that, I'll be okay. So he is right on spot with that. And I think more people need to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. He's pretty amazing. I split his episode into two because it was kind of a long talk, but I'm really thinking that I did him a grave disservice by doing that. And I'm planning on putting it out as just a single episode so that everybody can listen to his wisdom because I just think he had so many great things to say. But I'll put links in the show notes for that. And then I was wondering something that you said, like, um, What do you feel is your greatest creative strength? Because I I know that you use your creativity a lot to buoy you up, to make you feel like there's meaning and there's purpose. And, you know, like, thank you for listening to that episode, because that's one of the things that I harp on. I'm always like, I have these sayings and I'm always like, I'm going to get a bunch of coasters with all of these sill-isms. And that's one of them (laughs) where... You know, if you can find meaning in something, you can find purpose in it. And from purpose, you find contentment. You know, like people are always chasing happiness with a dollar bill. But I think happiness comes from finding your purpose. And clearly creativity is what brings that into your life. So what do you think is your greatest strength within all of the things that you do creatively? You know, when you sent me the list of questions, this was the one that I had the hardest time oh, no, you're like, trying to answer. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a lot of strengths. Um, I mean, for one, you know, I think the one that I probably really should focus on, even though I don't like to focus on is It seems to bring people joy. I seem to bring people happiness and and feelings and they enjoy my work, you know, and in my darkest days, I'm kind of like, why? But I think that's one of them. But the other strength, I think, is that I have a very hard time being myself. Again, I'm a people pleaser. I, I am very good at being a chameleon. I am very good at figuring out what people are looking for and acting a role. I mean, I've had so many people come up to me like, oh, I know, I, I can read you. I know exactly who you are. And I'm like, really? Do you really know? Or is it just what I want you to know? <laughs> but when you look at my art, it's still very difficult for me to be myself in person when I'm talking to you because I still want to... I'm still looking for the way to please you. I'm still looking for what you're looking for. But when you're looking at my art, you are literally looking at a window into who I am. I am the weird horse girl. I love cowboys. I love the Eastern Sierra Nevadas. I love the cold. I love the ruggedness of the cowboy life. I love learning about mental illnesses. I am a creative. I am this person who has stories to tell you. And I think my greatest strength is I am showing you who I am. I can't quite explain it to you. I can't quite tell you who I am. I'm not going to open up to people when I first meet them. I am a very guarded person. 
But if you ever really want to get to know me, just look at my drawings. And it's going to explain everything. Wow. That's amazing. And that is definitely a great strength to have. And I think communication is so difficult, Um, especially since I've been podcasting. I really ponder this a lot. There's a lot that goes on when you're communicating with somebody because you've got to find the right words to say, you know, people are listening for tone. They're listening for content. Like right now, we're doing this remotely. So you're where your space is. I'm sitting in my office. We're in completely different environments. So we're not even experiencing the same things. And there's just so much that goes on that is more than just the words coming out of your mouth when you're communicating with people. And it's so easy to clam up, especially if you have something to say and you're not in the right environment. And sometimes the best communication comes out in other forms, which fortunately for you, you've got this innate talent already that you have just built up to something that's amazing. And that's you. And I find that when I write, you know, I, (laughs) one of my friends, Don (laughs) wrote me one time and he said, you know, so I've been reading your writing for years and now I'm starting to listen to your podcasts. And I feel like your writing is Hunter S. Thompson and your podcasts are Martha Stewart. And it was true because I was doing what you had said earlier when I first started podcasting. I was too worried that I was going to offend somebody like, oh, I can't say fuck on the air. You know, I don't swear all the time, but sometimes it adds to the conversation or it's just the right word to use at that moment. Or you're so comfortable with who you're talking to that, you know, that's the language that you're using. And I'm totally fine with that. It's nice when I get comments like that because it's like oh okay I need to get a little bit more Hunter S. Thompson here and throw a a few more f-bombs in there and just make it realistic so yeah I mean communication that's why we get in trouble all the time because it's much more complicated than anybody wants to give it credit for it is and I think that's what drew me to the story of crumbs and dark country so much because it's a very raw and gritty nothing polished about it I, you probably have heard the term of uh, comparing the your blooper reel to everybody else's highlight reel right and when I, I come across stories like that where it's just you're experiencing humankind you're experiencing humanness and those are the stories i love like give me all the fucks and the bitches you know i don't want the it's a wonderful life jimmy stewart where everything is polished up and all that i want the nitty gritty the raw and i i think communication is so much more comfortable i i find i i'm much more comfortable around people who use the c word around me i'm like okay you i like you (laughs) you're not afraid to tell me (laughs) i've got a sailor mouth i love being a sailor mouth and when they're they're so polished and collected and polite i feel like i have to be this perfect statue and it's not comfortable yeah it's just not comfortable yeah 
the C word. I've been watching a lot of British shows over time. And when it comes out of an eloquently spoken English tongue just rolls out of their mouth. It's like, oh, you know. Right? (laughs) (laughs) The Irish say it beautifully, too. (laughs) I mean, it just packs me up. Um, I was going to ask you, how long did it take you before you thought that your art was good enough to sell? Oh, I still don't think it is. <laughs> I, I, I still, like, I actually was kind of forced to sell something because I was kind of out to prove one of my co-workers wrong. <laughs> oh he kept telling me, you need to sell this for so much. You need, you need to sell. You need to sell. You need to sell this. And I was like, nobody's going to buy that. And he's like, you need to sell it. So I did it to prove him wrong. And somebody bought it. Oh, my God. So he <laughs> proved himself right to you. <laughs> right? <laughs> you are a good artist after all, Madison. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oh my God, that's so funny. (laughs) You know something, speaking of that, have you done gallery shows? No, I have not done any gallery shows. Do that. I've done student art shows at the community college, but I've never actually had an art show. Do you have an average time that a sketch takes you to complete, or does it depend on what medium you're using or... Like, do you have a favorite medium? Do you, well, clearly you prefer black and white to color, but <laughs> traditional to digital? Well, it, it generally depends on if it's a Tuesday or a Saturday for me. Oh. It's definitely going to depend. I do prefer digital because I have the control Z function. Yes, that's a great function. It, it, it helps out with a lot of things, but I would say that I learn the most from traditional sketching, but I do my best work with digital sketching. And the time that it would take me to do a single sketch really depends on a lot of different factors. Am I stressed? Is it after work? Am I very distracted? You know, generally a lot of my sketches that only would take like 10 to 20 minutes will turn out to be two hour long sketches because I keep getting up to go grab a snack from the kitchen. Mm -hmm. It really depends. But... It also depends on the detail level of the sketch. As I've stated before, I've, I've started some of the Inktober drawings right now because some of them will be more involved. There's a lot more details in them, but I am drawing a kitchen right now with a lot of clutter. This particular drawing has taken me over two days. And Have you been in my house? <laughs> if you have a lot of clutter, I'm sure I could learn a lot from it. <laughs> clutter has always frightened me only because there's so many details and it's time consuming yeah um that's why i've always stuck with faces and i'm branching away from the whole just pure sketchbooks made of faces i'm adding more hands i'm adding mountains as much as i love the mountains that they're hard to draw (laughs) but it just depends on how much detail is involved with them the more i draw the subject the more tricks i find the shorter the sketch time gets and it's the inking process that starts taking even longer for me it was actually that decision made me decide that i think from now on a lot of my comic books and graphic illustrations are going to be sketches my sketches for some reason seem more polished than my ink drawings I would think that 
that would be maybe because of the ability to have more detail come through on a sketch versus inking, or is that not true? I think with inking, I, I think that is true. Um, I've seen some ink artists that have an amazing level of detail. I think I just kind of freeze up when it's a permanent medium like that. Whereas when it's pure sketching, there's not a lot of stress involved. I feel much more free in achieving what it is I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is all so interesting. I'm always like, oh, I could do that. And, and it's really funny because like, I love Rothko and I know a lot of people look at his stuff. It's just a lot of ombre colors on a big giant canvas. And you look at it and you're like, oh, I could totally do that. And you come home, you start slapping some, you know, watercolors on a piece of paper. And it's like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> And, you know, that's part of that expertise is making something look so simple, so relatable to everybody that people think, oh, I can do that. That is incredibly easy to do. And the truth of the matter is that there's so much experience behind that. And just a, a few times this story popped into my mind, which I have no idea if it's a true story or if it's urban legend that just has proliferated and everybody thinks that it's true. But there's this um, story that a woman was having lunch at a cafe and she noticed that Picasso was sitting beside her and she took her napkin over and said, would you please draw me something? And he said, sure. And so he took her napkin and made a drawing and he said, that'll be $15,000. And she was shocked, you know, like, how dare you charge me $15,000 for this napkin drawing? And he said, you need to understand that that's not just a drawing. That is all of my life experience, my schooling, the, the hours that I have poured into the arts. It may have only taken me a minute to draw this, but it has taken years and years and years of hard work to get to the point where I can do this. And that's what the $15,000 is for. And you've just reminded me of that story over and over with all of the time and effort and revisions of work that you've put in to be able to create these graphic novels, the, the portraits. And I know that you do portraits of people, you've been commissioned to do that sort of thing. I mean, like the art that you put out is a great representation of how much dedication you have put into this particular artistic or creative medium. It's funny you mentioned that because I see all the time other people are offering, you know, can you do this drawing for me? I'll give you exposure. And there's so much rage in the art community about that. And yes. I think it's very easy to forget, like, this wasn't just going to art school and paying for art school and learning. Like, this has been something I've been doing since I was a baby. And yeah, there was a 10-year period where I didn't really draw, but I mean, there were still days where I would pick up a pencil and I would just do a warm-up or I would make one drawing. This is a lifetime of experience. And even in those 10 years, I was still experiencing the knowledge that I would need to form what I need now you know, in my toolbox. And I mean, I compare it to my sister, uh, I say she still is an athlete, but my sister 
swam for the UC Davis swim team. I mean, she got a scholarship, a sports scholarship. and wow. But that was a result of swimming when she was two. And then she just kept applying it. And she eventually went on to swim for a very large aquatics team and went to all states and nationals, I think nationals. And then she moved to open water swimming. But she put in that time and effort to get to be on that team to set the mile record, you know, for a year before somebody else set the new record. But, you know, she got that money for a reason. And I think today it's, it's easy to forget that there is so much work that goes behind practically anything, whether it's fitness, whether it's drawing a business, you know, I'm learning that learning how to communicate and talk to people and make small talk. It's just a skill that you have to practice. I don't want to practice it. But you know, it's a skill that you practice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of hardship and struggle and learning and frustration and because life is messy. And so I love that all of that shows up in your art. Is there anything that I missed? I mean, I know there's some questions that I didn't get to, um, but I don't want to like take up your whole evening because we're running on two hours. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. I'm totally fine. <laughs> Did you want to talk about your lost sketchbook? Oh, you know, what's really funny is I totally forgot that I lost a sketchbook. Oh <laughs> I, I I don't remember where or when it was, but I suddenly remembered. I was like, oh, yeah, I lost a sketchbook somewhere. Um, I, you know, for the past five, eight years of my life, I had been experiencing a lot of loss, um, you know, a lot of uh, relationships, failed relationships. Um, my dad died uh, in a very traumatic way, and uh, I was robbed all in the same year. I, I found out my dad died. And then I got robbed where I lost oh. half of everything I owned. And oh it is devastating in the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am very surprised that I got through it because it was after my darkest period. I was starting to take my 12-step recovery program seriously. And I was starting to work. And I was starting to develop a more spiritual side to myself when I went through all that loss, it was very easy for me to go back into being my old self. But I started to, it started to kind of give me a new perspective. So when I think about that sketchbook, yeah, I was devastated. I mean, that, like I said, my art is the window to my soul and I do not let people in. I am very guarded. And today... I mean, I forgot about it. So yeah. today I'm very okay with a sketchbook wandering about in somebody's house. Maybe they loved it so much that they keep it on their coffee table or it's lying in the dump. I don't know. And, you know, if it's lying in the dump, that's fine by me. You know, aliens that come in a thousand years are going to find it and I'll be, that's my legacy right there. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. It's a loss that you kind of, you periodically grieve, but you do move on from it. You get things that maybe not necessarily replace it, but 
it heals you. And it's a beautiful thing. Healing is a beautiful thing. It's, it's a relief that I never thought I would ever experience. I mean, when my dad passed away, um, or before my dad passed away, I had been estranged from him for about 14 years, and I was just angry and pissed. And when I got the call from my mom that he had disappeared, this is like a week after I made the decision not to end my life. And I got that call and it was your whole world just kind of changes, you know? And then two months later, I get the call from my sister that the New Mexico police found his body. And after spending a lifetime being so angry, it just didn't matter anymore. And you, you really get to move past and see things in a very different light. You know, like I can joke about aliens finding my sketchbook now. The people who knew me three years ago would be like, who the fuck is this bitch? <laughs> <laughs> this is not the Madison we know. <laughs> the aliens came and took Madison. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> They're planning the invasion now. <laughs> I First of all, I have to say that that is very tragic, and I'm sorry that that happened. But sometimes those events have the ability of shaking us enough that we just realize we got to lay some of this stuff down and not carry it around anymore. And that that is freeing, like you said. So I'm glad that you got to a place where you can progress and really look forward to so many more things that you're going to be able to do, like so many more exciting things and it's not that you stop caring, it's that you emphasize the things that are important to you. You love to work out, and I'm sure that that really helps a lot too with just getting those endorphins going, and you love to exercise. Do you have particular routines, diet that goes along with it? <laughs> Uh, I have a boring diet. Do not come to me for diet advice. You will hate it. <laughs> I, I am not a very exciting eater. I get adventurous with my coffee. I definitely have a caffeine problem. I mean, I can quit anytime I want, but I, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm a very boring diet person. A lot of it is because I had formed, um, I don't, I don't want to say I was anorexic because I was never diagnosed, but I had very restrictive eating behavior. Uh, psychologically, it just, it fucked with me. And unfortunately, physically, it also messed up a lot of my insides. I started to develop severe body image dysmorphia. Um, so my diet is kind of the way it is right now, partially because there's a lot of food that makes me very sick. I cannot handle it. My metabolism got messed up very badly during that time. I was training with a trainer for about six years. And then I went from a training routine that was focused mostly on hypertrophy training or bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. And I was getting really, really bored. So I... <laughs> I mean, I guess this is a whole another story on itself, but I met a guy at the gym that I used to go to at that time. I don't know what it was, but he set this goal for me and he completely changed my workout on me. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever, you know, I, I guess you say so. I guess my people pleasing. I had a goal of reaching 
400 pounds for a hip thrust. And my record was at 365, 380, around there. Wow. I did not want to be a bodybuilder. I just wanted to be fucking strong. (laughs) We we always talk about these journeys, and fitness has been one of my best lessons, not only in helping me maintain and regulate my emotions, the hormones, and it's the best medication, you know, it's better medication for me than antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds. It's been amazing for me. And it also taught me how to go for what I want. I did not want to be a bikini bodybuilder model. I wanted to be a 400-pound hip thruster. I wanted to reach 250 pounds for deadlift. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And so I started to set up my own workout routine. I had worked so hard to achieve a certain aesthetic that I never could achieve. And the minute I dropped that to focus on strength, I achieved it. I don't know like if that's a common thing because I know everybody's bodies are different, but fitness has just taught me so much, not just about what I'm capable of, but how letting go and, you know, chasing your own dreams, chasing what you want can give you exactly what it is you want. I mean, I mean, that sounds simple and kind of like a duh moment to other people, but for somebody like me who's been chasing after approval from everybody else, that was, that was like the highlight of my year when I found that out. And amazingly enough, I've been lifting weights for eight years now. This is the first time in my life I am genuinely happy with the way I look. I am genuinely happy with how much I can lift, what my body is capable of. I'm still eating like a complete bore, but um, like I said, don't ask me for diet advice because I don't eat exciting. (laughs) I don't eat fast food. I rarely eat out. I mean, if I do, I'm going to 85 degree bakery to get a freaking donut, but like they're those little treats that I do allow myself. And that's okay to have a boring diet. It is. Yeah, it works for you. Again, that's going back to what you said with deciding to do for yourself what you wanted to do with hyper-focusing on, I just want to train for strength. I do not want to be a bodybuilding model. And knowing that and the freedom that came with that and the accomplishments that you were able to reach with that and it's the same thing with the food like who cares what anybody else thinks you know it's it's what's fueling you and you like it and more power to you I think that's awesome and I love that you're able to get so much out of the workouts you know that's so positive for you and you stuck to it you know, for eight years. So that says something. I mean, that's, that's really great. And I know that your other passion is knitting. So you draw, you knit. (laughs) (laughs) I've got many passions. I mean, I have my knitting in my car with me at all times. So yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I won't say that it's quite so much a passion of mine as much as it's just something that When I am in extreme anxiety, it's almost a mantra for me where I could just keep focusing on the knitting. I'm counting things. Thank God I don't have OCD or that probably would be a really bad thing. But there is something very calming for me 
about. Like I said, I, I, I don't take antidepressants. I don't take anti-anxiety medications. I don't, I, I barely take aspirin. I don't like taking pills. So when I can find things like, you know, working out, running, knitting, like I'm going to hold on to those for dear life. You know, I've gone to a couple of baby showers where I've made little sweaters for the little babies. Oh. And unfortunately, they grow out of it in one month. But so I, I mean, it's like, they grow here's so my fast. newborn baby a month later. Here's Jumbo baby. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, my God. I learned not to make sweaters for them anymore. I stick to blankets yeah. now. <laughs> those will last a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I do. I do enjoy it. It's fun. I'm working on a, a blanket that I completely messed up on. Uh, everything fell apart. So I'm kind of going back in and having to get all the rows back together. But it's all part of the calming down. You know, it removes those three thoughts that are repeating in my head like an infinite loop. You know, as long as I can break that loop, I'm going to be okay. I can get out of it. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you were talking about having to redo some of those rows. My daughter likes to crochet and sometimes she's just about done with whatever she's crocheting. And the next time I come through the room, she's just like unraveling the whole thing, the whole thing. And I'm like, were you not just finished with that? She's like, yeah, I didn't like the color. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh I know that one. <laughs> I've unraveled an entire sweater that I was making for myself and I got to the sleeve part and I unraveled it. Yeah. I just, all of that work, you know, I'm always sending her like, you should make this, you should make this, you should make this. She'll write me back. You should learn how to crochet. <laughs> <laughs> After watching you make all that struggles, really? <laughs> Traveling, I know that you. Like oh traveling. yes, I I've done quite a bit of traveling. I I've gone to Mexico. I've gone to Canada. I've I've gone to Canada twice by myself, and I went with my sister once. I love Canada. The joke I tell people is I'm still single because I'm waiting for my Canadian lumberjack cowboy to come sweep me off my feet. <laughs> <laughs> like I'd rather move up there into the Canadian Rockies, have my little uh, farm going on. I am going to be doing a little bit more traveling and this time I'm going to go do the things I want to do the way I want to do them. You know, I'm probably not going to be posting them on Instagram because my life is for me. You know, I, I guess if I could end on anything, it's we all have our lives and so many people spend so much time trying to make other people happy, trying to show the world look at look at me look at what I'm doing here you know social media has totally created a completely different norm I guess for the way how we interact with people yeah I want I to do the things I love I got made fun of for liking horses so much that I just I pretended to not like them anymore my, my next adventure now is probably you know other than the drawing and trying to get published is I'd like to leave Southern California and I would like to move to another state, particularly a state that's further up north. But to come to this decision, I've had to decide for myself, what do I want? 
And I've decided I want mountains, preferably to be in the mountains. I grew up in the mountains. I need cold. I need livestock farms. I need horses. I need to feel safe. And I need a good, strong Al-Anon community because they are the people that have helped me recover. And they are the people who helped me heal. They are the support group that I know are going to be there for me. They're worldwide. They're all over the place. You know, I need that. But when I was able to decide what I want, when I was able to look at my story and go, that's what I want. When I'm able to look at my fitness and go, nah, this is what I want. This is what's important to me. When you have those self-values, life, life is not easy, but life is simple. And I think that is the message that I would love to tell people more as I'm learning that more and more every day. And I am honestly blown away by her talent and the deep understanding that she has for her art, as well as her continued journey and understanding not only who she is, but in learning how to nurture herself. She's really inspiring Find out how to follow Madison in the show notes, as well as selected links. And also, please keep sending in your questions and comments. I read them all. If you have a fun, amazing, or inspiring story to share, drop me a line. I'd love to hear it. The world needs more amazing stories. Please also take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trowel, and until next time, I wish you passion, adventure, art, self-care, and 